Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope to those of you happening across our broadcast, webcast, podcast, uh, whatever cast it might be, uh, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And if you'd like to join on in, we would love for you to get in touch with us by sending along your questions. Any question you have about the Bible, very simple formula for the questions that we answer here on the broadcast. Just make sure it's a sincere question, and whether it's a question about an individual passage in the Bible, applying the Word of God to your life. Maybe a tough question or two has been lobbed your way by a skeptic or a non-believer, or even a, a tough question about the Christian faith has always been percolating in the back of your mind. Uh, you never found a no harm, no foul, non-judgmental place uh, to get it answered. Uh, prophecy, the events of the day, uh, even the events of tomorrow. How close are we to the return of Jesus? All these kinds of questions are on the table, but only one standard for the questions we answer. Just make sure it's a sincere question, and if you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'd be happy for you to be a part of the broadcast. As a matter of fact, uh, we believe that your questions are the most important component of a reason for hope, because uh, we don't sit around beforehand trying to figure out what uh, we think you need to hear about. Uh, we want to uh, tackle the issues that are nearest and dearest to your heart. So uh, feel free to jump on in. Joined, as always, by uh, my uh, relatively shaven and shorn uh, right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. If you're listening on radio, he actually shaved his beard per his mama's request, I believe. But uh, it's already how it works. It's already coming back. Uh, it'll probably be fully back in about a day and a half. Uh, that Viking ancestry showing up again. But all that being said, uh, Sean, you're with us. How can people get their questions to us? Well, if you'd like to join us online, you can uh, go to our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab set in the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our streaming page where five days a week from Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or Pacific if you factor out Daylight Savings Time. We will be streaming for you there, and if you need to figure out where that is in your respective time zone, maybe set on a calendar, notifications and so forth, we will be counting down to the next broadcast as well. That service will be provided. On the right-hand side of the screen, you'll be able to leave your comments as we are broadcasting, and if you want to leave questions as the broadcast unfolds, or maybe even afterwards, but maintain an aura of anonymity, if you will. Our email address is also spelled out at the bottom. That can be utilized by you reach radio listeners or any of our other radio affiliates that would be questions for hope at gmail.com questions is plural f-o-r hope at gmail.com note as well if you would like to utilize social media youtube is a reason for hope and facebook is calvary christian fellowship of tucson give us a like or subscribe there you'll be <coughs> notified when we are going live there but if for whatever reason either technical difficulties or censorship we are taken down on those platforms they can't ban us on our own platform 
yet, so make sure that the church website is your main way of contacting and engaging with us. Note, once again, the standard for the questions are sincere Bible questions. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. The Bible is the substance of the answer you're looking for. If you want to get beyond the Bible, then you can go beyond this broadcast to find the answer. And, of course, they are asked in the form of a question. Jeopardy points for everybody. With that being said, though, we'll be keeping an eye on the email address, the chat box, the Facebook page, the YouTube page, and also our Twitter page where we can receive your questions, scottr4h at twitter.com. Feel free to message us there if you have questions about the Bible as well. But before we engage with God's Word, we want to involve Him in the process. So if uh, you could start us off in a word of prayer, Dad, let's see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. Father, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to gather here in your presence and focus in on your word. What an awesome thing it is that uh, this is not your, uh, our word, it's about you. It's it's your word to us. And Lord, uh, whatever part of the scripture we go to today, we pray that you would sovereignly and uh, wonderfully guide us and direct us. We pray your Holy Spirit would empower us uh, not only to answer maybe just the uh, presenting questions, but even get through to the questions of the heart. Lord, you're the God who searches hearts and minds, and I know, Lord, that you can uh, speak to people in a deep and abiding way. I pray as well for those who may be happening across uh, the uh, podcast or the broadcast, uh, who maybe are curious about you but don't know you, Lord, in a personal way. I pray that they would come to understand what it means to receive you personally into their heart and life, to ask for your forgiveness, to ask you to make them a brand new person, and to know that because Jesus died and rose from the grave in a moment of history, that uh, the connection that we have with you is very real and powerful and possible and personal for them as well. Uh, Lord, uh, honor this broadcast, uh, honor your word as it goes forth. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's in light of that nitrogen deposit (laughs) in the soil. Another quick notification. Radio listeners don't have to worry about this, but if you're watching the live stream and we go down for whatever reason, we have means of backing that up. The broadcast will be uploaded at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Feel free to uh, re-watch us there if that's going to be a point of concern. Yeah, the only reason we mention that is I don't know if you can hear it on our microphone, but there's a pretty significant thunderstorm (laughs) kicking up (laughs) right now. We're in our monsoon uh, uh, season here in Tucson, and it's uh, it's really uh, a beautiful time and an exciting time, but sometimes it can create technical difficulties, as they say. So Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, question from Robert concerning the Chosen TV series. I guess it's been a minute. Uh, whether it's biblical or not, uh, what he's attempting to touch on is how do we reach Gen Z uh, in regards to, I guess, what the show was discussing. He did a bit of a poll. When it comes to any form of media, obviously, when we're talking about the Bible, the Bible is history, it is poetry, and it's prophecy. It's meant to be communicated and taught through, not necessarily to be illustrated, because at a certain point, either vital details that are intended to be communicated and thought through will be left out, and people will be misled into thinking that's all that there is in the picture, or the uh, artists themselves will come at it with a bit of an agenda and also 
so uh, skew a few details to fit his artistic vision, neither of which are good Bible teaching. When we look at, for example, things like the Passion of the Christ, was it an accurate historical portrayal of a full Roman crucifixion? Kind of yes, kind of no. It portrayed Jesus being pierced through the hands, uh, meaning his palm, right, yeah. rather than the ancient world's understanding of the hand, which was anywhere from the elbow up. And I've even had, it was one-sided, albeit, but heated conversations with people who insisted that Jesus was crucified through his palms, and if you didn't think that, then you weren't saved. It definitely causes us to cringe when we think of all the conversations we're going to have whenever these issues come up, even on the slightest of details. Now, was it an accurate portrayal of Jesus's, uh, I suppose, final hours regarding Mary's inflections and so forth, the nature of some of the, uh, I guess, events that were taking place surrounding this. Did Jesus have flashbacks to his childhood when he was uh, going through the uh, Hagia Sophia, uh, not the Hagia Sophia, the uh, uh, way of suffering? Or the Via that, Dolorosa. That's yeah. uh, Latin's fun. Anyway, was that accurate? Maybe, maybe not. And then, of course, was it true when Jesus was going through all these things? Did he say all the things that he was reported as saying in that film? And the answer is obviously no. But if we were to compare that to another film that put its cards on the table and said, hey, if you want to hear the real story, go to the actual historical source, we give DreamWorks productions, The Prince of Egypt, two thumbs up, because it at least made that specification. That way, when people ask us, hey, uh, was Ramesses uh, the actual pharaoh of Egypt? And the answer is, we don't know. There's some who believe it was Amenhotep III, others uh, different people, but it's really up in the air. And then they would ask, well, what about like the reasons why Ramesses uh, rejected God? Do you think it had something to do with how they portrayed it? And the answer is, hey, watch the movie yourself. It says this isn't the real story. What we actually know from the historical yeah. account is what was given to Moses as a firsthand eyewitness of these things. So we have more credit to people who put their cards on the table, and this has always been our position concerning the chosen, in clarifying this isn't the gospel. Right. This is a show right. to illustrate certain things. Now, there has been, well-founded by the way, controversy surrounding some of the publishers, some of the writing liberties, and especially the way that this has been presented, has been directly brought up to us by ex-Mormons, who are portraying Jesus in outright deceptive and cultic light. Now, is that completely true? I appreciate the sensitivity of people who have been called out of a lie into the truth, and any sensitivity towards deception I have 100% respect for. But you have to be not only aware of those things, but also aware hypersensitivity, I guess, is just being sensitive to conscience and saying, well, I won't watch that with you, but you can still be edified through it. The point being made, though, is that we have the individuals who are clarifying this isn't the gospel. There are people who get things outright wrong and make life harder for you and me, and basically having to set up questions to answer later. And there's those who, like in The Chosen, are just close enough to the truth that it misses it. And that's what we would caution people from in saying, hey, if you haven't read the Bible, why don't you just watch The Chosen? Because those are two entirely different things, only the names have not been changed to protect the not-so-innocent. Make sure that when we are watching shows, that we are watching movies, that we're even playing games, and the stories and the narratives and the information that we're taking in doesn't determine our worldview. 
but is discerned through our worldview. And what do I mean by that? Well, as some of you may know, I've been doing a YouTube channel, Shady Oak Ministries, for a little over a decade now, and I've been using things like entertainment, media, pop culture, and other things to engage with biblical truths towards people who maybe may not know those things or be studying this in depth, but do know those sort of things. And I always, always, always make the specification and clarification, this isn't the gospel, I'm using this to point you to the gospel. There's a difference. If that's the role of the chosen, then by all means, uh, let your ministry to Gen Z prosper, and we'll be praying for you in that. But if, on the other hand, you would advertise the chosen as an alternative to Scripture, or even use the chosen as a presentation of Scripture... Or have a the chosen Bible, yeah, that's, which some people are... Carrying now. Yeah, no. that's uh, not recommended. So make sure that that line is drawn. If people are going to reject the Bible, then it either presented in less than its proper substance or more than it is authentically is not going to make any difference. If people are going to receive the gospel, they'll do it as much in book form as they would in video, should that thing exist. Right. But we should make sure to specify, okay, if I can't get these people to read the Bible, why can't I get them to watch this? That's more medium where they're at. No, it's not. And make sure that you understand that. Yeah, you know, I guess to uh, throw it back a few generations, it would be like saying, well, uh, they wouldn't. I've got a friend who would never be interested in going to church, uh, but uh, they might be interested in going to see uh, Jesus Christ Superstar in a movie theater. And, uh, yeah, you know, among, among the other problems that you would run into with that is that it leaves Jesus on the cross. There's no resurrection in Jesus Christ Superstar, and Judas Iscariot is kind of the hero of the story. A little bit of a distortion there. Uh, you know, we could uh, go a uh, few years into the future. Martin Scorsese's uh, film, The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, which uh, portrays Jesus in his reverie on the cross, among other things, uh, being married to uh, Mary and Martha of Mary and uh, Martha fame. He was a bigamist. Uh, it, it includes a portrayal of the Apostle Paul uh, encountering this Jesus who didn't die on the cross and uh, how uh, Paul was preaching a resurrected Christ. And, uh, and uh, when Jesus says, why are you telling lies about me to these people? He's, Paul says, well, uh, I'm glad I'm, uh, look, these people need hope. Uh, if I have to crucify you, I, I'll crucify you. If I have to resurrect you, I'll resurrect you. Uh, I'm glad I met you. Now I can forget you. That was one of the key scenes that was going on there. Uh, you know, there are those who say, well, that's his reverie on the cross, and this is what might have happened if he hadn't gone to the cross. Well, even before he gets to the cross, you were introduced to Jesus uh, making crosses for the Romans. So hopefully his father would find him so repulsive that he wouldn't force him to be the Messiah. Uh, you, we find him before his temptation in the wilderness, coming to uh, Mary uh, Magdalene and saying, I'm going into the wilderness to be purified. Please forgive me for my sins. The worst things I've done have been to you. So, you know, when you say, oh, but it's the relatable Jesus, and that's what Martin Scorsese said he was trying to accomplish. He said that, I, you know, I thought by presenting a Jesus who struggles just like we do, it would give us all hope. But if your hope is based on a distorted, hence false Messiah, it's really no hope at all. Well, does the chosen fit into the category of Jesus Christ Superstar or The Last Temptation of Christ? Uh, I wouldn't say it's that blatant, but subtly I think it does. Uh, a great example of this is in Season 2, Episode 8, 
uh, where we have Jesus who is uh, composing the Sermon on the Mount, but he's stumbling over his own words. He seeks the advice of his disciples, critiquing his sermon before he presents it. And he agrees with some of their critiques and admits uh, that they have uh, corrected an apparent error in how his sermon was organized. Now, you you say, well, you know, that's just kind of humanizing all of this. Well, once again, one of the things we exhort you to do on this program is to uh, search the scriptures daily to see if these things are really so and anything that we say, uh, and and finding out uh, whether uh, things like the chosen really stand up under biblical examination. In light of the scene of Jesus' composition of the Sermon on the Mount, how does this jibe with John chapter 12, verses 49 through 50, where Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So, is the Jesus of the chosen who's stumbling over his words and trying to focus group his sermon on the mount and accepting corrections from his disciples in terms of format and such, the Jesus of the Bible? Or is it the Jesus of the production team of uh, the chosen's uh, imagination? Well, I don't think uh, that Jesus was a bumbler, uh, an inarticulate individual who stuttered and stumbled over the right thing to say something so much he had to uh, get the advice of sinful human beings who he created to give him the right way to say it. Uh, I have a hard time uh, buying all of that. So um, you want to watch The Chosen for entertainment's sake, uh, free country, you know, it's available on a number of different platforms. But if you decide to watch it, uh, do so. Uh, with your discernometer fully on. Don't just look at it, well, you know, it's entertainment. Well, no, I think it's more than entertainment. It's really gotten me closer to Jesus. You know, it's just, you can't have it both ways. Uh, If what you're just saying is, well, you know, it makes me think about the things of God, so that's good. Uh, All right. Um, I think there's other and better ways to think about the things of God than what's going on with this. But, um, you know, and I'm not even going to get into a lot of the influence of uh, the uh, LDS Church producers of this program and and how they've influenced the content there. But uh, I do feel, and we feel in this ministry, kind of as being watchmen on the wall to say to you, the flock, be very, very careful. Uh, You know, it doesn't take a a whole lot of arsenic to uh, poison a meal, right? Right. So... Be careful with it. Uh, if you watch it, be discerning about it. Uh, I don't recommend it at all. Uh, I think there's better things and better avenues for you to uh, to turn to in terms of edifying entertainment, but uh, it's a free country. All right. Uh, question from John, who... Uh Thank you, by the way, for reposting this. We didn't get to the issue yesterday. Uh, he had a question about Matthew eleven eleven, and he wanted us to explain how the least in the kingdom of heaven would be greater than John the Baptist. What's oftentimes confused by this, and you'll see the controversy, I guess, butting heads in one of two directions. Either they'll say, oh, so Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is greater than him because Jesus was born of a woman. Well, that's, of course, not the point being made, and you also need to note the point, well, if John the Baptist is so great, then how is it that the least would be greater than him? And the point would then have to assume in two regards, right. two things. Right. Either A, Jesus is not a part of the kingdom of heaven, 
like the highest in the kingdom of heaven. If the least is greater than John the Baptist, then Jesus obviously isn't degrading himself. Yeah. The second is you have to exclude John the Baptist from being a part of the kingdom of heaven in this life compared to the next. And that's where I think the confusion comes in. Because note, was John the Baptist in a relationship with Jesus. Don't take my word for it. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, following his conversation with Nicodemus, what does he say when his disciples come to him and say, now Jesus, he wasn't baptizing, but granted, they say, people are leaving you and going to him. Does John the Baptist say, oh no, competition? What does he say? No, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He said, you've heard me say it myself, I'm not the Christ. Uh, He consistently referred to Jesus as someone uh, whose uh, sandal he wasn't even uh, worthy to unlatch. And at the baptism of John the Baptist, interestingly enough, that was a confirmation to John as much as to what would one day be his disciples, and actually the next day. But you get the idea of the fact that John the Baptist was affirming Jesus as the Christ, which is how you get into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, he referred to himself as the friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom himself. But note that point, John. So when we're, I guess, determining hierarchies, what does Jesus pay John the Baptist, his cousin, literally, this compliment? Well, it says in a lead-up to it where he describes him as not only a prophet but more than the prophet, he says in verse 10, This is he of whom it is written, quoting the book of Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So, oh, excuse me, that was uh, Malachi chapter 3. But the point being made is this. When John the Baptist, in an earthly sense, would have been compared to any, anybody in the Old Testament, who had the highest honor, if not to see the Messiah himself and be not just a witness to it, because Simeon had that honor as well. He wouldn't die until he saw Israel's redemption. He had the opportunity and honor to literally roll out the red carpet for him, to be the hands that baptized him and dedicated him to his earthly ministry. Right. He played the essentially capstone role of all of mankind's salvation being revealed to the world. Now, no, we can look at Mary, Jesus's mother, Mary, as a singularly honored woman that all generations would call her blessed because of the role she had in God's purposes. We could note Elijah was certainly used in very dramatic and visual ways. We could note Moses was the pioneer of God's work in a written format, and even Abraham as the one to whom this would basically set aside to uh, bring salvation to all nations. But compared to all of them, who had the greatest honor? in an earthly sense, in the purposes of God, John John, the Baptist. And Jesus affirms that. He says, Assuredly I say to you, those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Then, in contrast, he notes, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then goes on to note, persecution's been taking place since the beginning, but here's the point. What do you people want? John came, and you didn't listen to him. I came, and you won't listen to me. What's your problem? That's the drive of the conversation. But in this side note Jesus is making, in a compliment to John, you have to dismiss two things in order to get confused here, and this is where we have to be careful of our our presuppositions. Is John the Baptist not a part of the kingdom of heaven? Is Jesus not a part of the kingdom of heaven? Are you and I not a part of the kingdom of heaven? We can answer all those in the negative. So if that's in fact the case, then we're not being put higher than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is simply being complimented. But then the people who rejected John the Baptist and him are then being insulted because they didn't listen to either of them. Right. Note that's the thrust 
of the conversation, but also note as well the misunderstanding that skeptics, Muslims, and even fellow Christians, John, uh, oftentimes bring to the text. John the Baptist was in the kingdom of heaven, just like the rest of us are. He believed in the Christ. But if we assume that this compliment being paid to him sets him apart from everyone else, it excludes him from the kingdom of heaven, we're making an inappropriate assumption. When it comes to those given a singular honor, that would be more fitting to the context. Yeah, uh, you know, and the other thing that I would say about uh, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Uh, We sometimes, I think, uh, fail to understand the amazing privilege that we have as believers in Christ. Uh, You know, we are told, for instance, in the book of 1 Peter uh, about the ministry of the prophets and how they ministered during their time and uh, how uh, they, uh, in essence, uh, would look forward to the relationship with God that we, in fact, are able to enjoy. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, we are told of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and search carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into." In other words, the relationship that we have with God is something that even a guy like John the Baptist, in a sense, could only dream of, because John the Baptist was still under the law of Moses at that point. And one of the features of the law of Moses was this, God was separate from man as far as being able to enter into full fellowship with him. As a matter of fact, the whole temple setup was designed to illustrate to people that God was holy and we're not. Uh, The holy of holies in the temple the place where God would manifest his presence, was only available to one high priest one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement to go in and offer a sacrifice for all the sins that had been committed in ignorance the rest of the year. He alone could go in on that one day. It was like God's way of saying, uh, I am holy. You can't just approach me in any willy-nilly kind of way. Uh, If you did uh, in your sinful state, Uh, you would be in big-time trouble. But when Jesus died, what was one of the physical manifestations that reveals the spiritual reality that we have in Christ? Well, among other things, there was a physical resurrection of the dead for many people, but even more specifically at that same time, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the place of the sacrifices was torn from top to bottom after an earthquake. And as we've mentioned before, that veil was 30 feet by 60 feet, in length. It was four inches thick. You know, when we hear veil, we tend to think of flimsy material. This was definitely designed to uh, be a major obstacle, a block, if you will, from anybody getting in there. Suddenly, from top to bottom, it's torn. What does that mean? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us pretty clearly that we have a new and living way to approach God through the veil. We can now come boldly before the very throne of grace. That was a relationship with God that John the Baptist could only dream of because the price for sin had not been paid for yet. So the least in the kingdom of God, that is the least who would be a true follower of Jesus following his death and resurrection for us, would have incredible spiritual privileges that, uh, boy, you mentioned Daniel or, or Moses or, or any of the prophets from the past. 
uh, all of them would have loved to experience the fellowship with God and the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that God has given to us as believers. Boy, it's something we dare not take for granted. Yeah, it would be like comparing our position today to those who will be there at ground zero when Jesus' second coming takes place at the end of the tribulation. We're looking forward to that, but they will be the ones to experience it. Compared to the category of the Old Testament to the New, that is the point of transition. It's not uh, distancing John from those who are in the kingdom of heaven. It's making a point of emphasis, be a part of the kingdom of heaven, because the greatest honor that you've had in the past, that's to John the Baptist. Hey, if we're talking about honors, you haven't seen anything yet. Yeah, exactly. All right, um, got a question from Mac that I want to get into, but I don't want to take up a lot of time, so I want to hand this off to you first before we get to it. This is a question from Isaiah who wants to know, does God still give people personal prophecies? Well, um, Isaiah, there's no reason to suggest uh, that he wouldn't. Uh, those who deny uh, the idea of the gift of prophecy still being used in our day and age, uh, belong to a school of thought called cessationism. And what cessationism teaches is that signs and wonders and miracles, including the gifts of the Holy Spirit described in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, were only for the founding of the church. Now that we have the completed canon of Scripture, what we call the New Testament, we don't have any need any longer for the sign gifts, they would say, as uh, of, the, of the Spirit. Uh, I, I haven't uh, heard any cessationists argue that the gift of helps or administrations has passed away because we don't need that. But when it comes to, say, tongues, when it comes to healings, miracles, when it comes to prophecy, then uh, they say that has been superseded by the completed canon of Scripture and passed away. Well, Couple problems with that. Uh, first of all, in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, the famous love chapter, uh, we are told that uh, regarding uh, spiritual gifts, it says, where there are tongues, they will be done away with. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it shall pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will pass away. Well, the big bone of contention in this debate. Uh, Isaiah, is uh, that, uh, you know, okay, what is the perfect there? And some people say, well, you know, God's uh, Word is good and perfect, uh, so uh, you can't add anything to it. Uh, we have the completed canon of Scripture, therefore we don't need these uh, gifts like tongues and prophecy and knowledge. Okay, here's the problem. In context, in 1 Corinthians 13, the completed canon of Scripture just isn't there. Uh, what is the perfect being referred to there? God's perfect, completed work within the life of believers. Now we know in part and prophesy in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So uh, I, I think it's a weak argument to say that uh, prophecy will pass away. When we add to that, and you mentioned that this, uh, I think, even uh, earlier this week, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 19 gives us a really good basis uh, in, in order, five and, and 19, yeah, uh, to evaluate uh, prophecy. Yeah. It says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, 
Test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every sort of evil. Okay, so we don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. We don't want to get in the business of telling God's Spirit what he can and can't do. Now, having said that, I think it's important to emphasize the Holy Spirit is never going to move or manifest himself in a way that is contrary to his inspired word. It's always going to check out according to Scripture. But notice it says, don't despise prophecies. Well, why would prophecies be despised, do you think? I can name a few ways. The first and most prominent these days would probably be cynicism. Yeah. You've heard so many people come up and say, thus saith the Lord, there's this and such and such election is going to take place, and this uh, will usher in a new era of prosperity, and the gospel will be preached to all nations, and so on and so forth. Well, we know that didn't happen. People right. come to the broadcast and go, oh, uh, did you know the rapture is going to happen on, and you don't have to listen any further from there. It goes on and on, and you you have this temptation in your mind to just kind of rip your eyelids down as far as they'll allow and go, okay, anyone says the word prophecy, I'm going to throw up because I can't take it anymore. Because it's been abused so much. Right. So we have to be careful because the temptation would be to despise it. The word despise means to set it aside. Uh, how interesting that the cessationist would want to set all this aside. And I get it. Uh, it's a lot neater and a lot cleaner. Uh, just to say that God doesn't give personal prophecies to people. But do we see, even in the New Testament, uh, some examples of God giving personal prophecies that were apart from, say, uh, anything that he had put in his word? Well, classic example of this would be in Acts chapter 13, where you have the group of, of elders and apostles gathered together in Antioch. They were praying and ministering to when the Holy Spirit said, set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. So here you see a direction from the Holy Spirit that you can never look up chapter and verse. You say, well, well, I don't find that in the Scripture. Well, what they were doing, what they were being sent to do, was utterly scriptural. And, and note, they, they verified it by other revelations that had been given, say, for example, the revelation given to Saul before he became Paul, where he said, he must preach to me for all nations and know all the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. If they heard from the Spirit and... Saul would naturally have received that, he would have gone, yeah, that, that lines up with what God's already spoken. Yeah, so here we see an example of what I would call a personal prophecy. So does God give personal words to people today? Uh, there's no scripture that indicates that uh, the gift of prophecy isn't in session today. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the uh, most uh, powerful definitions. What prophecy is all about is found in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3, where it says, the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Uh, someone who says the gift of prophecy isn't for today, just say, well, God is in the business of edifying, exhorting, and comforting his people. Uh, I don't think we really want to go there. Uh, so, you know, rather than throwing the classic baby out with the bath water and saying just because there are people who say, thus saith the Lord, at the 1984 Olympics, there will be a huge earthquake in Los Angeles. Pretty fair prediction there's going to be an earthquake in L.A. And believers need to put aside food and be prepared to minister to people during this time. Uh, and then, you know, it doesn't happen, and they come back on the air, and they go, oh, well, so many people prayed God decided not to send it. Wow. So, you know, I get the cynicism aspect of it. And believe me, I've pulled muscles rolling my eyes and my head over some of these prophecies. But on the other side of the coin, I have received in my life, personal prophecies that lined up with Scripture that have been absolutely not only life-changing, but, but verified by the Word of God. 
So when we look at this whole issue and someone comes up to us and says, man, I, I just feel like I have a word from the Lord for you. Don't despise it, but test it. That's the most important thing. You know, and, and when people come up to me and as a pastor, I get it a lot. They say, oh, you know, I was praying and the Lord gave me this word to share with you. I'm always open to it. I say, oh, please, you know, share it with me. And after they get done, I will say, you know, I'm really going to pray about that and seek, seek the scriptures to see if these things are really so. Now, their response at that point is one of the diagnostic tools I use to find out if it's really from the Lord or not. Because uh, the wisdom that is from above, we're told in James uh, chapter 4, is first of all, easily entreated. In other words, it, it's not puffed up. It's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in your face. It's not angry. Uh, and uh, when you say to somebody, well, you know, I'm going to really pray about that, and you just don't say, oh, okay, I'm going to go out and do everything you said. If they do blow their, their stack, if they do get angry and start saying, thus saith the Lord, you know, you are going to H-E double hockey sticks because you did not obey my voice, you know, then I know it's not the Lord. Is that edifying? Nope. Is it exhorting? Well, I guess in a manner of speaking, but not in a really constructive way. Is it comforting? No, it's not. And if it doesn't line up with those things, we are under no obligation to receive it. Now, I want to have every possible good and perfect gift that God can give to me. I don't want to say no to any of those things, but I don't want to fake it till I make it. You know, that's the other danger you get into is going, well, I, you know, maybe I can make something of my head and, and God is going to make it a, a prophecy. We got a, a question uh, a few weeks ago about a word that said elbows and, and knees or something, knees and elbows. And what does that mean? Well, aside from a kid's song that we learned to sing, not much uh, because it doesn't line up with God's word. Uh, on the other side of the coin, there are those who will be given the gift of prophecy, will be able to speak very powerful words that do check out, that do test us. And, and just as a person that has received, in one case, a really powerful word of prophecy that really uh, uh, radically impacted my life for the Lord, the one thing that I discovered walking away from it was this. There was nothing in that word of prophecy that I could not have discovered simply by reading my Bible. But because of where I was at emotionally and personally and spiritually, uh, the Lord really kind of had to get through my thick-headedness and let me see what he was doing in my life where I would have missed one of the greatest blessings south of salvation I've ever received. So, uh, you know, I don't think necessarily getting a personal prophecy is a compliment or a way of saying that I'm hyper-spiritual. I think it's probably uh, God's way of saying, you know, I'd much rather have you just get this out of my word but if you're so thick that you're not listening to me, I'll send along a prophet that can get you back on track. So, you know, that, that I think is really uh, where we need to leave it. We don't want to discount it, but we don't want to be uncritical consumers because there's a lot of charlatans and a lot of con artists that will try to use that particular tool uh, to get into your wallet. So, And uh, as a follow-up on this, Casey wants to know, can God give us personal prophecies in our dreams? I, absolutely, but you'd test it the same way as if you received it when you were awake. When we're looking at, and this is before we get to Max's question, I want to give that one due time. Uh, when we look at examples of God speaking to people through dreams, you'd notice that in all three situations where it was spoken in a dream, uh, Joseph, of course, being the odd man out in the New Testament, that was very specific, but lined up with the prophecy in Hosea. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, 
twice and the Pharaoh of Egypt? Why were they given dreams from the Lord instead of just uh, having Daniel or Joseph come in and speak to them? Because they were coming from a worldview that only understood the God speaking in this way. Right. Their expectation of the supernatural was apart from God's Word, so God met them where they were at in order to bring them in line with God's Word. Because note, along with the dream, who was literally in the next room waiting to give them the interpretation? Joseph and Daniel. Right. So when God speaks, it's going to be also given an opportunity for there to be a clarification on that, whether it's through his word or through a prophet, be that as you will. But the point of emphasis is just that, Casey. We need to test everything that we hear from God, because that uh, quotation mark is a very dangerous one. Yeah, and I think if God gives us a dream, uh, he's not going to be subtle about it. You're not going to be saying, oh, I wonder if that dream had spiritual implications. You're going to be kind of blown away by it all. Uh, Acts chapter 2 uh, Simon Peter, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, quotes the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. On my maid, men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit on those in those days, and they shall prophesy. So uh, we do see there is scriptural warrant for all of that. We just have to be very careful about it. And uh, the, the thing is, if God decides to speak to you through a dream, understand this, Jesus' promise that he gives to us in, in John chapter 16, that when the spirit of truth has come, he will lead you into all truth. He's not just going to give you a dream and say, well, good luck figuring it out. Uh, he's also going to lead you either to someone that can give you an interpretation like a Daniel or Joseph that has that uh, particular wisdom or insight, or he's going to say, man, file this away in the back of your mind, and, and I'm going to reveal it to you in uh, proper time. He might even say to you, go your way, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the vision sealed up until the time of the end. Maybe you won't understand everything that was a part of that dream until the proper time. But God doesn't do that to tease us or to say to an angel, ah, look, I'm going to give him this dream and it's going to bug him forever. No, it's going to be part and parcel of leading us into all truth. So if, if we can interpret even something we think is a spiritual dream, uh, by uh, seeing it through the lens of Scripture and asking the question, what, is this, what does this mean in light of this dream? How can I use this to draw closer to the Lord, to bear more fruit of the Spirit, to fall more in love with His Word? If you ask those kind of questions, I don't think you're going to go too far wrong. And as also a side note, to the side note, if <laughs> someone just says, and this is brought up by Isaiah, uh, a coincidental claim about the future and they get it correct. Does that necessarily mean they're God's spokesman? And that, of course, is also no. God doesn't tell us the future just to show off. It's always in confirmation of his character and his purposes. So if someone were to just predict the future and saying, you know, one of these headlights is going to fall down at such and such a time, and they're right, that doesn't mean they're a prophet from God, even if they say, thus saith the Lord. And it's, isn't it funny how people that trade on that oftentimes leave their prophecies notoriously vague? Two nations will go to war, but only one will Win. But even if they were specific, we have in the book of Deuteronomy, even if the sign or wonder comes to pass, God's testing you that they may know that, that he may know that you may love the Lord your God. If we're asking ourselves the question, okay, does this prophecy line up with the character of God? What is that going to entail? The salvation of his people is a start. And 
calling out an election may uh, get you, um, I guess, gambling odds at the local bar, but it's not going to get any hits on the internet. Yeah, it sells some books. Yeah, it's not the purpose or character of God, so we'd have to dismiss that given scriptural muster. Make sure that that's not confused. Prophecy isn't just talking about the future; it's speaking on behalf of God. Yeah, and uh, the the standard for prophecy is is what what is a passing grade if you say thus saith the lord well a it comes to pass but b also as you stated edification exhortation and comfort and c but 100 percent of the time the prediction yes. has to come to pass yeah. you know there was a movement called the kansas city prophets uh they it was part of a uh a church called ihop not the international house of pancakes but the international house of prayer they called it prices These, were about the and, same. and the, the kansas city prophets uh said that they were uh gold-level prophets, and that meant that 90% of everything they said came to pass. And if you went to their school of prophecy, you could start out uh, on a certain level of being a prophet, and maybe 60% of what you'd say would come to pass, and you could kind of move yourself up through their, their train. I kid you not, uh, this, is, this is what they taught. Well, the problem is, even if you were part of the gold standard of prophets, and only 90% of what you said uh, happened according to Deuteronomy 18. We are told that the standard for a prophet is that everything they say has to come to pass, and if it doesn't, you don't listen to them at all. Because guess what? You get one "Thus saith the Lord" wrong. What does that make you? A false, false prophet. prophet. Now, pro tip here, kids: of all the things you can be called in Scripture, maybe the last thing you ever want to be called is a false prophet. So, if the Lord going to speak through you. You're going to thus saith the Lord something you better make absolutely 100% sure it is the leading of the Spirit of God and that it checks out according to Scripture. All right. Uh, now the moment we've all been waiting for. Max question. A person asked him why Muslims, Catholics, and people of not Christian faith can't get along. Oh boy, I love this one. Um, obviously, you'd have to ask them individually, because again, people come from a lot of different yeah. backgrounds. There are just cantankerous and contentious people, and they may just be seeking conflict for its own sake. It doesn't have anything to do with their beliefs. However, the reason why Christians and Catholics and Muslims tend to be always at odds with one another, and Mormons as well, isn't because Christianity, and this is where we get to the distance of the individual, the follower, who can just be, you know, a problem child, and yeah. that doesn't have anything to do with what they believe, it's just who they are, and the ideology. Does the ideology, does the foundation and claims, authoritative claims, by the way, not just something that their preacher or priest or imam said, but their actual claims in Scripture, put them... Primary documents. Yeah, and put yeah. them in conflict with people who don't share their worldview. Well, if we look at Christianity, what are the marching orders for those who call themselves little Christ? As much as depends on you, this is the Book of Romans, live peaceably with all men. Right. Now note, we must earnestly contend for the faith, the prophet or the apostle Jude said, but if we clarify and noting with gentleness and respect to be grace seasoned with salt, where we fall short of that, that's not Christianity, that's the Christian. There is a right. difference. And if a Muslim comes up to you and is very nice, is very cordial, is very respectful, properly sources himself and doesn't get caught up in his emotions, well, then he's a nice person, but he's a bad Muslim. And what do I mean by that? Well, if we go to their primary documents, I got my Quran here. I always make sure it's smaller, by the way, than my Bible, because this is the bigger and better book. Um, <laughs> we go to Surah, chapter, or Surah 9, Surah it means chapter, and verse 28, where there's an interesting observation made concerning essentially all Muslims' future relations with Christians from the time going on 
forward. Surah 9 is one of the last major surahs revealed by Islam, and according to the tafsir, that is the commentaries, uh, this abrogates all peaceful verses that came before it regarding Christians and uh, Muslims. Verse 28, O you who have believed, surely only the polytheists are unclean, that is in reference to the Christians, by the way, so do not let them come near the forbidden mosque after this their year. And if you are afraid of coming to poverty, so Allah will enrich you from his bounty if he wills. Surely Allah is knowing the wise. This is the context of the next statement, where it is concerning how are we going to make money if we exile the Mus- or the non-Muslims from Mecca? We get all our income from trade. Surah 929 answers the question, How will Allah enrich them from his bounty if he wills? Engage in war with those who do not believe in Allah, nor the last day, nor forbid what Allah and his messenger forbid, not Muslims, nor believe in the religion of truth among those who have been given the book, that is, the Torah and the gospel, until they pay the jizya, that's a poll tax, out of hand and they are subdued. Now, how do I know that those who have been given the book constitute Christians and Jews? Well, verse 30 goes on to clarify. The Jews say Uzair, that's the Arabic for Ezra, is the son of Allah, and Nazara, the Christians, the Nazarenes, say Christ is the son of Allah. This is their saying from their mouths, and they repeat the sayings of those who became infidels before. Allah engages in war with them, how perverted they are. They take their rabbis and their monks as lords rather than Allah, the Christ, the son of Mary, and they are not commanded except to serve one God. There is no God except him. Praise to him above what they partner. They desire to extinguish Allah's light with their mouths, but Allah refused, except that his light be fulfilled, even if the infidels hate it. So there's an ongoing declaration of war for Christians, not because of their wars with the Muslims, but because they make claims that Christ, the Son of Allah. I don't remember that Ezra was ever called the Son of Allah, but it wouldn't be the first time the Quran got something wrong. All that being said is there's a point of emphasis in the religion itself to be in conflict with Christians that they can't get along. That's because their Christians, their religion says, "Don't get along with these people." Right. In fact, uh, one of Muhammad's earliest and uh, immediate successors made the observation in the Hadith literature that uh, we not only smile in the faces of some people, although our hearts curse them, he made the special point of emphasis in referring to Christians and Jews that these people are not only to be fought and subjugated, but to be done, done so with your foot on their back when accepting the jizya, or personally he'd have the honor of beheading every last one of them. So note the point that's being made. The primary source is the founder the religion, the people who knew the intentions and executions of Muhammad were ordered not to be at peace with the unbelievers. Strive hard, the Quran says, uh, wage jihad, literally, against the unbelievers and, t- and let them find in you hardness. Uh, the infidel is the literal worst thing that you could be in the eyes of anyone, and anyone who isn't a Muslim is identified as an infidel. So note that point. You mentioned Catholics as well. The same issue comes up. This is in the Council of Trent, which is an authoritative source. In Canon 9, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtaining the grace of justification that is not in any way uh, necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. That's a Latin term that means accursed of God. Also, in Canon 12, it says, If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing 
else than confidence in the divine mercy, pardoning sins for Christ's sake. Do we believe that? Yes. Oh. Or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. In Canon 14, it says, If anyone saith that a man is truly absolved from his sins and justified, because that he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified, but he who believes himself justified, and that by his faith alone, absolution and justification are effected. Do we believe that? Yes. Let him be anathema. And in Canon 23, it says, If anyone saith that any that a man once justified can sin no more, or lose grace that the therefore then falls and sins where he was never truly justified, or on the other hand that he is able during his whole life to avoid all sins, even those that are venial, that's an interesting term, but we'll get into that in a moment, except by special privilege from God, as the Church holds in regards of the Blessed Virgin, let him be anathema. Now, obviously, this would be more negotiable, but notice the hostility isn't on the part of the Christians, it's on a part of the Catholics. There are Catholics who don't adhere to these doctrines and aren't even aware of the canons of the Council of Trent, but the point, I think, stands, and if you want to mention any other non-Christian group, the point still notes. If you go to Hinduism, uh, Shiva is just as much right to God to be called among any other, and yeah. by characteristics, yeah. a destroyer and an abuser of those living. So note that point. Why yeah. do you follow Shiva in other cases and not in the others? When you look at the doctrine of karma, those Christians who would do charitable works to help those in poverty, that would be interfering with karma and the greatest evil, so there would be a natural conflict in ideology, as well as an example. The points go on and on, but here's the point. If we look at individuals, they can be weird, they can be rude, they can be mean but that doesn't mean that's what their religion teaches. That's the same as in the other stat. People can be nice, people can be polite, people can be gentle and meek and mild, and even Christ-like, but that is not their religious teaching, that is them. If, on the other hand, their religion teaches they're to be in conflict with us, and they are, that makes them a good Muslim, that makes them a good Catholic, that makes them a good Hindu. But if, on the other hand, we look at our religion and realize we're kind of in conflict with each other, with other people who don't know the gospel or have perverted the gospel in some way, then we've got to get our house together because our, Christ our religion isn't defined by our actions, it's by our sources and our founder, our book and our man. If the book commands you to be violent and not get along with anyone, that's the book's fault. You need to find a better book. But our book says to be, uh, as much as depends on us, uh, peaceful with all her... Um, but, but peace with all men. Thank yeah. you. That's the point that's being made. So yeah. make sure that we judge a religion not by its followers, but by its foundations. And if that religion's foundation calls you to be in conflict, that kind of answers your question. Yeah, and I, the only thing I'd add to that is uh, there's a, boy, this is a few years back, I, I wrote a book called Reasonable Doubts, Is Your Faith Built on Fact or Fiction? And we devoted a whole chapter in there, Do All Religious Rivers Lead to That Same Ocean, Which is God? Uh, you know, there are people that somehow think that this is biblical, that, you know, if you're just sincere, then uh, whatever way you decide to follow uh, is going to be fine. They might even use the analogy of the, the uh, blind men and the elephant. Uh, you know, it was a poem by Rudyard Kipling about how these five blind men came to an elephant and uh, they wanted to uh, discover what an elephant was all about uh, by observation to satisfy their minds. And so uh, one of them uh, touched the elephant's side and said, oh, an elephant is just like a wall. Uh, another grabbed the elephant's trunk and said, it's like a snake. Another grabbed a tusk and said,
said, it's like a uh, a sword. Uh, another uh, grabbed uh, its uh, its foot and said it's like a tree. Uh, another grabbed the tail and said it's like a rope. And it says all were partly right, but all were in the wrong. And the, you know the analogy goes over to that's how all religions are about God. They're they're mostly right, but they're you know just focusing on one aspect of Him. Well, all well and good until like. You say, Sean, you start to study what these religions teach. And, uh, you know, the the most important thing that I think uh, harshes the mellow of the uh, coexist bumper sticker is what Jesus himself said in John 14 and verse 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I was on a religious talk show one night uh, on uh, ABC radio, and uh, I, I could hardly believe it, but a Roman Catholic priest said there's a lot of different ways to take that verse. And I said, name two. Uh, either Jesus meant what he said, that he was the only way to God, or he's the worst teacher the world has ever known. So, you know, when we look at these things and we see religious people in different religions not getting along or having conflict, well, of course there should be conflict because there's a conflict between darkness and light. There's a conflict between truth and error, and you can't really have it both ways. We like the feel of the middle ground. We like to look at ourselves as moderate, but as a seminary pal of mine once put it, the only thing that you tend to find in the middle of the road are yellow streaks and dead skunks. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to a relationship with God, because God has spoken to us through the person of Jesus, you got to make up your mind one way or the other. Either he is who he claimed to be or he's not. And if he is, then all of the other truth claims of religions, which were founded by men, and uh, basically man's ideas about God, and all have the same mentality, they just phrase it differently, that starting with our feet planted squarely on earth by following the dictates of their religion, by going through their rituals, by achieving certain states of consciousness, you can build your own stairway to heaven. The Bible says, no, you can't. God is holy and we're not. That's why Jesus had to become a man, walk among us, live a perfect life we could never live, die on a cruel Roman cross for our sins, and rise from the dead so that whoever has faith in what he has done for us, not in what we do for God, but faith in what Jesus has done for us, finds that gap between God and us bridged. That is what the good news of Jesus is all about. And you kind of can't have it both ways. Either that's true or that's false. Either all these religious views are just the blind men and the elephant, or maybe the only one who ever had true spiritual sight has come and revealed to us what it means to truly know God in a personal way. God bless you, and we'll see you all again tomorrow. And uh, feel free to join us for a Wednesday night service as well in a few minutes. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.